Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Jim, uh, thank you very much. Uh, you know, I never miss a free lunch. And um, well, really, seriously, I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm glad to be here, and thank you very much for having me. It's an honor uh, to address such a distinguished audience. And uh, I have the uh, a prepared uh, text, but don't think I need to bore you with this. I'd rather have a, a conversation, an exchange. Uh, of opinions, I'll make some introductory remarks, and then really I'll be interested what you think about uh, Russia today and what you think about uh, the state and the future of uh, Russian-American relationship. So uh, being abroad, being in America or visiting Europe, uh, I've, you can find out being a Russian that a lot of people just simply underestimate how big a change has occurred, had occurred in Russia about uh, 15 or 20 years ago. And some people still look at Russia today as the smaller version uh, of the good or bad old uh, Soviet Union. Yeah, we are small in size. Uh, Russia is not a Soviet Union for, for many reasons, and not just for the reason that uh, uh, Russia uh, lost uh, some of the former Soviet republics, like the Baltics, Ukraine, Moldavia, Trans-Caucasus, uh, uh, Central Asia. That's true, but uh, if you look at Russia today, you'll find out that uh, about 70% of the economy is private enterprise. It's a dramatic change uh, from the system we, we used to have uh, in the Soviet Union when we had totally state, 100% state-controlled economy. And we had one-party political system in the Soviet Union, just the Communist Party, nobody else. Uh, now in Russia we have a multi-party political system, we have elections, some may criticize uh, how they are held, but uh, they are real parties who, who are engaged in uh, uh, political uh, development uh, uh, of the country. Uh, one thing I want to stress specifically uh, is the fact that uh, after the Iron Curtain fell, most of the Russians, for the first time in their lives, uh, got a chance to travel and to see the world. Uh, me, uh, I graduated from a prestigious uh, Moscow Institute of International Relations. I was supposed to travel, you know, being a diplomat, uh, which I did, obviously. But most of the Russians, 98% of the Russians, had no chance to travel abroad. Maybe uh, some touristic trips to, uh, to other uh, countries of the uh, so-called socialist bloc uh, in uh, 
in Europe, and uh, that's it. And now, especially for the younger people, it's very important. They, they have this opportunity to see and to compare. Uh, and it's a huge development, uh, especially in the minds of, of these people. Like my younger daughter, she, uh, she did some translations. Uh, she, she went to college and in her spare time did some translations, Russian into English and English into Russian, earned some money and took uh, a not expensive bus tour of Europe, uh, visiting France, Holland, Germany, Poland, and other countries in 10 days. Well, it would have been impossible 20 years ago for a kid. So it's, uh, it's a new Russia. In, in many senses, it, it has traditions uh, linking it to the past, but uh, uh, very important changes really occurred. And uh, we, the Russians, we paid uh, a cost. We, we really, uh, the cost was huge. I mean, uh, when the reform started, the, the economic reform, uh, and when the country was turned from uh, a communist economy to a capitalistic economy, we, I think we, we didn't really know how to do it. And uh, no experience at all. Free enterprise was something uh, uh, which deserved uh, you know, a penalty. Uh, and uh, I'm afraid uh, the Russian leadership uh, in that period uh, had no strategy or clear-cut plan how to go about it. So the result was, for most of the Russians, uh, it looked like humiliation. It looked like losing practically everything they had, like uh, savings in the banks, uh, just disappeared because inflation ran at hundreds of percentage each week. I do remember I had 3,000 uh, rubles uh, on my bank account, and uh, in a month or so, uh, uh, that amount uh, uh, equaled to, to 30 rubles, just like this. Um, so uh, we struggled. I mean, Russia really struggled. It was really humiliating. I, re I say it again for, for, for the Russians to receive humanitarian assistance from Europe and America, just foodstuffs, you know because we couldn't produce enough to, to feed the, the people. But uh, I don't know, but uh, was there any alternative to, to that course? Uh, I don't know, but uh, the Russian government in the 90s chose the most radical way of uh, turning from socialism uh, to capitalism. And uh, President Yeltsin, He's a very controversial figure for, for many Russians. And uh, uh, me personally, I, I, I can't you know, forgive him two things, actually. The first thing is the war in Chechnya. He started it. And the second thing is uh, that he allowed to emerge in Russia uh, this uh, oligarchic type of, uh, of capitalism. Uh, which in, in my country we, we've never experienced before because the gap between the rich and the poor uh, was too big. It still is too big, actually. And uh, personally, I, I do not think uh, uh, the Russian oligarchs uh, deserve to be in uh, the 100 uh, most, the richest people in the world, according to the Forbes magazine. Because, uh, in my opinion, to, to become real rich, you have to 
you know, to produce something. It must take time and effort. Uh, but for, for the Russian oligarchs, uh, those billions of dollars just, you know, fell from, uh, from the skies and uh, with, the, with no real contribution from themselves. But uh, let's not talk about the injustices of, <laughs> of, of the world. Uh, that's how it went. And uh, uh, in the 90s, uh, the situation was as bad as, uh, you know, uh, the Russian Federation uh, was running a risk uh, to be dismembered even further. So whatever you think of uh, Mr. Putin and his team, but uh, during eight years of his rule in Russia, uh, finally the country began to, to normalize using this world. Uh, uh, and uh, it was just bringing some common sense into the politics, mostly domestic, domestic policies and foreign policy, uh, politics as well. So uh, Russia recovered, and uh, that's a phenomenon uh, uh, many people still can't explain. Uh, Russia is down, Russia is uh, humiliated, everything, and uh, all of a sudden Russia is back. So uh, Russia started to recover, and uh, in, the, uh, in this century, uh, Russia was, uh, Russian economy was one of the fastest growing economies of the world. Uh, you've heard this BRIC abbreviation, Brazil, uh, Russia, India, and China, four fastest growing economies uh, in the world. But it's still, it's, it's still, I can give you just one figure. Just two years ago, the GDP of the Russian Federation reached the equal of the year 1989. That's how deep uh, the, uh, the decline, the fall was. So, here we are, Russia today. We have a new president elected last year, uh, Medvedev. And uh, Mr. Putin is still uh, very active in formulating and implementing uh, mostly domestic uh, politics, uh, being prime minister. And uh, some people in Russia, after the successes, so-called successes, or you might call it, I mean, successes of the, of the last eight years, uh, uh, came to believe that uh, uh, now we are on the right track and we can go forward like it is. But the uh, financial turmoil of 2000, the fall of 2008, just showed one obvious fact, illuminated this fact, that Russian economy is still a backward economy. Russian economy is still based on using natural resources, selling oil and gas, uh, minerals, uh, 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 and that's the uh, the most part of the of the budget. So it's it's became clear. It's become clear to to the leadership and to to most of the Russians that we can't just go on like this. Uh, we must modernize the economy. We must modernize our political system. Must make it adaptable to the realities of the 21st century. We must have more international cooperation, obviously defending our national interests as, as, as we understand them. So that's why President Medvedev launched a program uh, of, of modernization uh, of the country. And to do this, to do this, we need to, to be more effective 
in our ties uh, with the West and with China and with India and with Brazil uh, to, uh, to make economy work in the 21st century. We need expertise, the U.S. has, the West has. We need advice, we need investment. Though now Russian economy, Russian enterprise can make investments uh, abroad. Like an example from my consular era, I think two years ago, Severstal, uh, it's a steel company uh, based in, in, in the Euros uh, of Russia, bought a steel mill in the state of Mississippi, the town of Columbus. And when I visited the mill, uh, I was concerned that I might see, you know, dozens of Russians, engineers uh, and so on, uh, telling the, the local people, the Americans, how to run things. No. There was just one lazy man uh, in, the, in the office building, and uh, the management was local. I talked to the mayor. He said, that's the thing. That's something we want. That, that's what we need. We would welcome more investment. Russian investment to our economy because it helps, it creates new jobs and it helps us, uh, you know, pass through these hard times uh, with the crisis. Uh, when uh, we're dealing with the uh, bilateral relationship, uh, it's never been easy, neither in the, in the Soviet times nor in our later history. Uh, uh, fortunately, now practically uh, the uh, the threat of, uh, of a nuclear clash is non-existent. Uh, we can go forward in further reducing uh, the nuclear arsenals, and the uh, text of the START three treaty is about to be completed by both sides, and uh, we'll have new uh, reductions uh, of nuclear strategic offensive weapons. We need to finalize some things, but. Uh, it's workable, and uh, I think we'll have it sometime uh, this year. Uh, we, uh, we can do a lot in, in space exploration. Uh, I'm in Houston, and uh, I visit uh, uh, the Johnson Center, and I see how uh, uh, Russian cosmonauts and uh, American astronauts train together, and uh, I, I see the, the control center. Uh, which is working in unison with the control center in the territory of Russia. And we are together in, uh, in the uh, International Space Station. Uh, I just remember the story uh, the Russian ambassador in Washington uh, told me just, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he's, uh, before becoming ambassador to Washington, he was the first Russian ambas uh, ambassador to NATO to NATO headquarters in Brussels. And it was the period uh, of the Kosovo crisis. And for, for some time, uh, a Russian con military contingent worked in Kosovo together in the American sector. The American sector, and by the way, it was uh, under, the, the American uh, under, under the command of an American general because we, we didn't want to be under the command of a NATO man, but we agreed to, <laughs> to be under the command of, a, of an American general. So uh, our troops worked together with American troops. And the ambassador uh, visited Kosovo, that area. It was uh, an area bo uh, of the border uh, between Serbia and Kosovo, a very dangerous place. And uh, uh, the ambassador was curious how 
the Russian and uh, American military uh, could work together. So he uh, summoned the Russian lieutenant, somebody like 23 or 24 years old, and asked him a question, well, how, how is it to work with the Americans uh, in, on such uh, uh, in Kosovo? And uh, the, the Russian uh, officer was surprised. He said, well, on the same job, why are you asking? So later on, the vessel went to an American sergeant, asking him the same question. How is it to, to work with, uh, with the Russians? He said, sir, I don't understand the question because we are on the same mission. So we can really work together. And, and the military know better than sometimes uh, than the civilians. So uh, I think uh, all in all, uh, we need to, to recognize uh, one thing. Uh, America, the strongest country in the world, can't do it all alone. And uh, to do certain things, uh, traditional alliances are not enough. Especially in this globalized world, uh, not many questions, uh, not many problems can be solved without the participation of Russia. If you make a list of things we agree upon, I mean Russia and America, and list of things uh, we disagree on, I think the, the first one would be much longer. We have our differences, and uh, I do believe that we will have them in the future, but it's, it's not a tragedy. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, some time ago I, I had a conversation with Secretary uh, James Baker and told me, Nikolai, look, if America and Russia disagree on 10% of items on the agenda, it's normal. It's just normal. It can't be uh, another way around. So two such big nations uh, with historic and territorial and whatever, well, no ideological uh, differences now. So we can deal with, with, with these differences, but they may occur, occur and they do occur. We, we, we disagree on Georgia, uh, we disagree on, uh, on uh, the enlargement of NATO uh, to the Russian borders. Uh, we disagree on uh, how, how best to protect our homeland uh, from uh, potential uh, attacks uh, by, by terrorists. So we're still in, in discussion how, how we can build a, a common shield and not do it unilaterally. And uh, uh, I do believe that uh, the progress, that the decision of, of this administration, Obama administration, at least to postpone this thing and have more discussions, uh, is very important uh, for, for better understanding each other and for having uh, uh, joint politics. So uh, the, these differences, uh, those differences are not vital to the national interests of the United States of America and the Russian Federation. What do we miss? What do we lack? Uh, I, I, I said it this morning, and I, I keep repeating it. We do not have enough economic cooperation and trade between our two countries. Uh, not last year, the year 2008, uh, before the financial meltdown, uh, the volume of trade between uh, USA and, and Russia was $36 billion. Well, it's an improvement if we compare it to, to five years ago. Before that, uh, the volume was six 
billion dollars. So it, it, it has increased, but uh, obviously that's not enough for two such big countries for two uh, so strong economies. So, and if something goes wrong, imagine, politically, uh, $36 billion of trade can't be a safety cushion, you know. Can't, can't you know, safeguard the relationship from, uh, from potential crisis. So uh, I hope we can do better. Last year before, uh, in the fall of last year, I visited the headquarters of uh, the energy uh, corporations uh, based in Houston, uh, talked to all of them, uh, uh, Shell and Exxon and uh, ConocoPhillips and, uh, well, the rest of them, Chevron. And uh, I, I, uh, it was, uh, I was glad to hear that practically all of them uh, link their future development to cooperation with Russia. So it's, it's one area of cooperation. So we'll see. Uh, I think we can do more. Now, uh, I don't believe that uh, the relationship uh, with the, of Russia with the, the George W. Bush administration was, was that bad. Uh, there were even worse times, but uh, last fall when the crisis in Georgia occurred, uh, I was scared. Uh, personally, I was scared being a, an experienced diplomat. Uh, I was scared that uh, the two countries might have uh, crossed the point of no return uh, in uh, a new confrontation, new Cold War, something like that, which was, which was possible really possible. So uh, with this administration, it's, uh, the atmosphere of the dialogue is better. Uh, maybe it wasn't personally George W. Bush, but he had certain people in his team, uh, neocons, uh, didn't really care about Russia and uh, didn't really want, you know. It was still playing the, the zero-sum game, you know. We, we played for, for so many years uh, throughout the uh, Cold War. Uh, Period. So uh, the perspective is good. We do have differences, yes, we do. Uh, are there uh, opportunities and possibilities for developing uh, cooperation in different areas? Yes, uh, the answer is positive. So let's work together. I think uh, it's our common task, and uh, our children deserve uh, the leadership of two countries to be in good terms and to be pragmatic and to work together solving uh, global problems and bilateral problems uh, that exist uh, in this area. So, uh, thank you very much. Uh, so uh, I'm open to your questions and uh, I'm looking forward to your remarks, your ideas as uh, how we can go further in developing bilateral Russian-American relations. Thank you. We have a tradition at the World Affairs Council to give the first question to one of our visiting students, Spencer Smith from L.D. Bell High School, and you touched upon this, but I'd like you to go a bit farther and really clarify the issues. His question is, how do you feel about the United States' choice to favor the expansion of NATO? Uh, well, I, I, I know and I understand and I appreciate the position of the United States and most of the European countries that each nation has a legitimate right to choose which alliance it can join or not join and which is the best way for this nation to defend its territory and its interests. So we, we have no veto power on NATO enlargement. 
But we certainly, in our di dialogue with NATO, uh, we just make one point. When you do something, us being in the same area, in the same territory, uh, the interests of security of Russia must be taken into account. That's all. Uh, we, uh, we have uh, several agreements uh, with NATO. We have an agreement, uh, the Rome Declaration, that sufficient uh, troops or sufficient military forces shouldn't be installed in the uh, territory of the uh, new members of NATO. It's not being observed, strictly. Uh, American bases in uh, Romania uh, and, uh, well, uh, elements of the ABM system that uh, are still planned maybe to be installed in Poland and uh, Czech Republic. Uh, I mean, it changes the balance, balance of forces. So we want to have as much cooperation with NATO as, as it is possible. Uh, we can't, uh, we've never been invited officially. Some people say it's a good idea that uh, Russia should be uh, a member of NATO and no, uh, then there'd be no problem. Then NATO must be different uh, because NATO with Russia is, is, is not NATO in, in the usual sense of the world because of the size of the Russian military and, uh, you know, uh, everything else. So uh, we express openly and sincerely our concerns about, uh, about, uh, for example, uh, inviting Georgia into NATO, because Georgia, the ins uh, the uh, the war in uh, South Ossetia, just show if if Georgia at that time in August of nine, uh, 2008 had been a member of NATO, what would it what would it mean then? I mean, Georgia attacked South Ossetia, devastated the capital of the country. Being aggressor, which was proved by the report of the uh, European Union, being a member of NATO, Georgia could expect support, protection, everything, military assistance from NATO. That, that could mean a war between Russia, uh, Russia and NATO because of irresponsible behavior of, uh, of the leader of uh, one of, the, uh, of those countries. That's our concern, legitimate concern, I believe. Now, the same with the Ukraine. In, in Ukraine, the majority of people don't want to be in NATO, but this, uh, the, uh, the position of the majority of, of the population uh, uh, was being ignored by the political leadership, uh, which is now leaving uh, the uh, Kiev. So uh, that's how we see it. Uh, uh, we believe, uh, uh, you know, further enlargement of NATO uh, just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Why? To protect someone from whom? From Russia. We don't accept it. Russia has no aggressive, uh, you know, intentions or ideas or plans or whatever towards uh, former Soviet republics. Uh, I do believe, again, it's my personal opinion, I'm, uh, you may not agree with me, but uh, for some of political leaders of the newly independent states, this idea has become a, an instrument to stay in power. Yes, I know, using this as a, as, as a pretext, as a political uh, uh, thing to, to, to stay in power and to maintain the political positions uh, uh, they had once. So, I don't know whether I answered that question, but I tried. I think you did. Mr. Kramer. How does the average Russian feel about the possibility of a nuclear Iran in the neighborhood? Well, uh, that's the nightmare. 
That's the nightmare for, for all of Russians. And we understand it better than anyone else because Iran is on our border. So we must do together the international community, Russia, United States, Europe, uh, everyone concerned, China after all, uh, uh, we must not allow Iran to get nuclear weapons. Uh, the method, how, how, how to achieve this goal, uh, that's where we differ. Uh, well now, uh, America says more sanctions. Russia says more negotiations. Uh, Let's give Iran a, a stimulus uh, to, uh, you know, to, to change uh, behavior. Uh, I agree with you that uh, the leadership of Iran acts irresponsibly and uh, doesn't really, you know, fulfill uh, the obligations uh, 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 the, uh, made by the international community. Uh, but then I always ask myself, uh, if we, well, sanctions, more sanctions, more sanctions, where does it stop? Because it's, it's a self-propelled process, and uh, it will certainly, you know, repeat the Iraq scenario. It will be a war, after all. Do we want it? Now, when we talk about sanctions, uh, oil embargo, are you prepared to do that? Is the world ready for another $200 a barrel oil? I wonder. Uh, so we must be patient and uh, try to, to, to use to exhaust uh, diplomatic means uh, to uh, influence uh, Iran. And uh, by the way, Medvedev, President Medvedev said not so long ago that there might occur a, a situation when more sanctions or more political pressure on Iran would be necessary. <laughs> so we don't, you know, exclude such a possibility. Other questions from the floor, please. Yes, sir. Sir, according to a custom that dates back to ancient Greece, the right side or dexter side of an image is considered good, and the left side or sinister side of an image is considered evil. This custom is reflected in the great seal of the United States of America. Now, there is an idea that Russia can increase its prestige, increase the morals of its future generations, and increase its visibility, increase the visibility of its shared cultural heritage with the United States if Russia were to redesign its double-headed eagle coat of arms to give significantly more emphasis to the right or dexter side than to the sinister side. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, you know what? I've thought about it. <laughs> and not just me, because when I have a double-headed eagle, uh, one looks east, the other looks west. So it's, uh, it's a symbol of, uh, of uh, a specific uh, geographical and... Uh, what a, I don't know, at least say geographical position, when uh, Russia is being influenced by Europe, uh, Peter the Great yeah, opened way to, to Europe. But uh, there is this Byzantine tradition also, looking, uh, looking east. So uh, it's, it's a very uh, difficult and strange combination of influences, uh, which makes, uh, well, Russia is the only Euro-Asian, real Euro-Asian country, and most of the territory. Uh, the Russian Federation is in Asia. Uh, but I do believe that politically, culturally, uh, religiously, 
Russia is a Western country, a European country. Uh, but then again, you can't, you know, deny uh, this historic heritage uh, we've had. Uh, there was a discussion uh, several years ago in, uh, in Moscow, at least, uh, that uh, the symbol of the Tsarist Russia, because a two-headed uh, two eagle is, is the Tsarist uh, symbol, uh, uh, should be changed. But we've, we've changed so many things uh, uh, without uh, good purpose. I mean, renaming streets and uh, throwing down monuments and, you know, m maybe that's enough. So let's keep it for at least for a while. Maybe maybe later on we'll be ready to have a one-headed one <laughs> eagle or, or a bear, I don't know. But but it's still the, the symbol of Russia. Interesting question. Yes, sir. Yep. First of all, I'd like to thank you very much for your insightful comments uh, and, uh, and perspective on uh, Excuse me, what, where? Do you anticipate uh, any uh, new economic development or trade initiatives, perhaps that we are not aware of? You mean of? between Russia and the United States? Yes, Russia. In, in this area. Mm -hmm. My second question is, uh, and, and I mean this in a very diplomatic sense, do you anticipate uh, uh, the Russian Federation recognizing the independence of those Ah, uh, good. Well, as for the economic and trade relations, uh, I do believe that there are opportunities uh, that can be, uh, uh, you know, used uh, to, to develop further the relationship. I think that the uh, target number one should be oil and gas. Uh, I've mentioned that uh, the uh, American energy giants are really interested and we are prepared to go f further. So, uh, uh, but uh, a lot of other areas, uh, uh, pharmaceutical uh, space exploration. I think there are opportunities, and uh, uh, we've created a special commission, not Gorchian and Merdin, which was to, uh, we couldn't lift it <laughs> off the ground. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, the desire is to, to look seriously at, at new possibilities. As to recognition of Kosovo, uh, may I ask you a question? Uh, would it be prepared in a short historic perspective to recognize independence of South Ossetia and Abkhazia? Well, uh, the same with me. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We uh, we believe that uh, Kosovo, Kosovo made a precedent, you know. You want it or not, uh, when uh, a part of, of a country uh, uh, declared independence and the international community, most of the international community uh, recognized uh, its independence, though uh, the former uh, uh, bigger country like Serbia now rejected it and, 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 and didn't accept. That's one example. The other example, north of Cyprus, recognized only by Turkey. Uh, but uh, uh, north of Cyprus has a lot of trade with <laughs> a lot of countries without uh, political uh, recognition. Now, the, uh, the argument I, I couldn't, you know, couldn't uh, reject uh, about Kosovo. American diplomats said that, uh, well, you know, the Kosovo's just, they, they would never live together with the Serbs after what happened to them. 
uh, ethnic cleansings and uh, horrors. Uh, so the same thing applies to South Ossetia and to Abkhazia. Two wars. They fought two wars against Georgia and they didn't attack Georgia. So they are not prepared to live together with Georgia, at least in this historical period of time. But the West would recognize the independence of Kosovo but deny this uh, to Abkhazia and South Ossetia. That's double standard. Thank you. Joe, you had a question? Well, I was going to ask, um, what steps is uh, Russia taking to attract foreign investment? Uh, I, I We've changed. That, yeah. mm -hmm. I know that recently there's been kind of a foreign capital flight out of Russia. And I'm wondering, yeah. you know, what, what steps is Russia taking to... We, 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 we are making several steps. Well, first of all, and it's, uh, it's not a secret, corruption in Russia. Well, corruption is the major obstacle. Corruption in, in, the, in the government and official circles, everywhere, regions, center, central government, whatever. So uh, uh, now we're trying to curb it. I mean, we, we are really uh, prepared to, to take effective measures against corruption, which is the major obstacle. Secondly, we've changed legislation, domestic legislation. A lot of things uh, uh, introduced in the last years. So the, uh, the investment climate judicially in the Russian Federation now is not worse than anywhere else in Europe. So I think these are two, and we also uh, must make known uh, what opportunities uh, foreign investment can have in Russia. Uh, a very good thing, uh, in, in Houston uh, last summer, uh, uh, we created uh, the Russian-American Chamber of Commerce. Main goal is to provide necessary information about uh, potential uh, economic or business uh, partner, uh, uh, organizing conferences, uh, roundtables, just bringing information. Uh, because I know that uh, uh, some businessmen, American businessmen, come to me and ask me, I, I have business, I'm interested in doing something with Russia, but I don't know who, who a partner might be the Consul General is there to help, to assist. And now, as to, to assist the Consul General, we have this Russian uh, Chamber of Commerce, which, which is, uh, I think, is very important because uh, we have, you know, uh, we have the trade mission in Washington, D.C., right? And that's it. That's it. it. It can't cover all the country, all the United States. So uh, I hope this, uh, this would be helpful. <coughs> We have a question from a student from Trinity High School, Abigail Johnson. In what ways have, has the Russian judicial system made the transition from authoritarianism to the rule of law? Uh, the Russian, well, the Soviet judicial system was uh, designed and uh, was operational for, for such a state as the Soviet Union. So one-party system, <laughs> centralized uh, economy, everything else. Uh, with, uh, with the reforms, we still have the same institutions. We still have uh, the same ministries, same agencies. But they need to work now in a, in a very different environment. Oh, just a very simple example. In the Soviet times, to buy something cheap and sell it expensive was considered to be a criminal act. It's one of the rules of business. You buy 
something, you, you sell it a little cheaper. So it's, uh, it's not criminal anymore. So the, uh, the old judicial system, uh, the law enforcement in the Soviet Union wasn't that bad. Really, the Russian police. It was effective. So uh, when the, uh, with the reform, we w well, it was, uh, it was obvious to me. It was, I can understand this desire to, you know, to, to terminate with the past, to start from a, a clean page. But it can be done, you know. You, you need some things, uh, you need some institutions, you need some instruments uh, to preserve the state as it is, to preserve the nation as it is. So, uh, well, the, now the Russian police, uh, well, at least they say it's uh, one of the most corrupt organizations in the world. We need to reform it. We need to, to make it... But we need time, you know. Uh, the, uh, those changes occurred not so long ago. Historically, it's nothing. If I say so, I do remember that, well, tell me if I'm wrong, in the 50s or even 60s, a uh, police department somewhere in, on the East Coast was corrupted or not. If you just watch the movie, the Hollywood movies, <laughs> you have to tell uh, a lot about it, though I don't believe Hollywood, but, uh, but then if, uh, if there's uh, no other good argument I can... I uh, can use this one. So, uh, well, to, to do a lot to, uh, to modernize and uh, to, to create, if it is necessary, a new judiciary system. Because the rule of law is not as good. Uh, I can't say it's non-existent, but it still it's, it needs to be reinforced. Sir, you had a Absolutely. question in the back. What percentage of the Russian people, if any, do you think feel like they were better off under the old system? I'll give you one example. I'll give you one example uh, without answering directly. Uh, a few years ago, uh, a poll was taken uh, in the Russian Federation, and the question was, who do you think was the uh, greatest political leader of the nation in the 20th century? Guess who won? Stalin, uh, third place. Well, Leonid Brezhnev. Leonid Brezhnev, because a lot of people believe that with him we had that, I call it negative stability. But everyone knew what would happen tomorrow and the day after. Uh, no one was rich, but then no one was, you know, very poor. That was negative stability, and a lot of people still long about that. Mr. Tilly. Mr. Constable, let me also add to the comment. We appreciate your candidate and life very enlightening comments that was fascinating. You, I'm sure, know personally Mr. Putin and also the current president of Russia. And let me ask you this. Can you state that they truly believe in and support freedom of the press? Freedom of the press? Well, I don't know. I don't know how to, to answer this one. We went... Well, in the 90s, I, I, I do remember very well, uh, well, the harshest, the most, you know, devastating uh, criticism of everything in Russia, you, you could find it in, in the Russian media, uh, much stronger than uh, American or, or European uh, or whatsoever. Uh, does it exist, I mean, freedom of the media? Well, some, some of the... Of those who uh, who, uh, who were actors in, in, in that media revolution, uh, beginning with Gorbachev, not with Yeltsin, the glasnost, you remember, uh, a possibility to talk openly. Glasnost, that was uh, Gorbachev later on, uh, that was Yeltsin. 
So uh, they practically dominated all the television channels, all the radio, uh, internet, everything. Uh, now I think it's uh, it's unfortunate, but those uh, pro-democracy, pro-liberal, pro-Western forces uh, who ruled in Russia throughout the 80s, they can't get 3% of the popular vote at elections. So they lost influence. They lost, and they lost in instruments uh, like media. Uh, for example, those guys who uh, were in, on independent television uh, really formulating the, the Vox Populi, the voice of the people in the Russia in the, in the 90s. Now they're working in, in Ukraine, supporting the pro-democratic forces there. Ukraine, to my mind, is in the, historically, is in the 90s, uh, where Russia was. Still, uh, because uh, this political turmoil is, is too much, and, uh, and uh, n nothing really changes. Uh, last, ele last elections, just two, two weeks ago, the same situation as uh, four years ago when the Orange Coalition won. Yanukovych, 30 plus percent. Uh, Timoshenko, 20 plus percent. Yushchenko, uh, 4 or 5 percent. But if you collect, well, the, uh, the, the votes, it'll be 50-50, more or less. So it's still a stalemate. Uh, with no viable uh, political decision in hand. Now, uh, internet, you can control it. So you can find any opinion you want in, in internet. Now, uh, access to uh, Western international media, no problem, no problem at all. Uh, on, on the state on television, you don't see much of opposition now. Uh, well, Maybe it's, it's logical for the state <laughs> to, to act that way, but uh, no, no, no radio station, no television station is being shut down for political reasons. And, uh, for example, uh, Echo Moskvi, which is the Echo of Moscow radio station, still was in the 90s, still in, in this century, very popular, and I went there, uh, answered questions. Uh, President Medvedev went there, Prime Minister Putin. So uh, we have this variety of opinion. It's just the, the hardships of the, of the 90s again uh, changed the mood of most of the Russians against, you know, against free press. Uh, because uh, democracy, if you, if you say this word in Russia, uh, almost equals to for that word. For some people. <laughs> yes, ma'am. And then the last question over here. I wanted to uh, make a comment a little bit off the, the, um, what most people are asking you. And uh, someone said that you were candid in answering difficult questions, and you were. And I, I feel obligated to just make a statement about your country because I just. We'd like a question or a very okay. short statement. Uh, a statement is welcome. Uh, Thank you. Uh, my third trip to Russia, uh, first in the <coughs> 
completely restored now. They're just beautiful. And I met many Americans who've traveled in Russia and have the same thing to say. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Last question. Two quick questions. All right. Uh, first one is, what interest is uh, Russia is planning to invest in to diversify away from oil and gas? And the second one, do you think the current administration is doing enough to battle corruption and influential markets? Well, it's trying to do. At least it's uh, the, this administration is, is really, at least it declared a campaign, anti-corruption and anti-mafia uh, anti campaign. Uh, if, you, uh, if you'd say that uh, not too many, you know, after Khodorkovsky, practically no uh, big top ten, you know, figures were. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's working in the, in the regions. Uh, the, this is, uh, well, I have a lot of... Uh, uh, Guys, bad guys brought to justice uh, in the last uh, years. Uh, enough? I would say no. Not enough. But uh, to, to be real successful in fighting corruption, a mafia, you need to have solid economic basis, you know, healthy economic basis, good legislation, rule of law, uh, independent uh, courts. Because if you don't have all this, you'll have corruption. No other way. So uh, it's a big problem for Russia. Enough? I don't know. We, we are trying. As to uh, the first one. Uh, what industry is Russia planning to invest in? Ah, yeah. Well, uh, I think it would be, uh, well, like uh, President Medvedev formulated, it would be mostly high-tech. High-tech, nano. High-tech uh, uh, energy, uh, including nuclear. Uh, energy, uh, space, medicine, uh, oh, more or less high tech everywhere. Just like us. Just like you. <laughs> Just like you. Let's give it more. Thank you very much. Thank you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.